Exodus chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 17. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. In the next seven weeks, I would like to try, God willing, to preach a series of messages that was inspired last August as I read these words in Psalm 9. And those who know thy name put their trust in thee. I'm always on the lookout for things that will enable you and me to trust God more deeply, more fully, more intensely, more boldly. And when I read, those who know thy name put their trust in thee, I felt led of God to preach about the names of God. And I picked out seven names. And I'll take one a Sunday, beginning today, and we'll come to a climax in that great missions conference weekend under the text, Hallowed Be Thy Name. So that's my aim, and I think the reason the psalmist says that the name of God builds and strengthens faith is because the name of God in Scripture, or indeed most names in Scripture, are more than designations. They are meaning. They are content, character, mission, power. If you just trace it through, Adam named Eve because she was the mother of all the living. God changed Abram to Abraham because he was the father of a multitude of nations. Sarai was changed to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, and so on. And when the Son of God comes into the world, God doesn't leave that name to chance. You shall call him Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. I have four sons that I have named along with Noel. Karsten was born in Germany, and therefore we thought and prayed and chose a German name, a form of the word Christian, under the hope and prayer that God would bring him into the experience of that reality. A Christian as early as possible. Then came Benjamin, and his birth announcement carried a paraphrase of Moses' blessing upon the tribe of Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33:19. Beloved of God, he dwells secure upon a cosmic boulder. 
Though small and to the world obscure, he rides on Yahweh's shoulder. And that has been our prayer and will be for Benjamin. Then came Abraham Christian and Romans 4 verse 20 gave us the reality in the name that he might grow strong in his faith, giving glory to God. And finally came the son of consolation, Bar Nabas, Barnabas, son of consolation and encouragement, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit in the hope that one day this fat little baby would grow up and be a man of encouragement and faith. But there's a big difference between Noel and me and God. All we can do is pray and teach and hope and work. When God names, it happens. And when he names himself for us to hear, we can know He is doing it to reveal something glorious about himself. And he has given himself in Scripture many awesome names. And we're going to look at some of them together. And my prayer as we look at these seven names is that your eyes and my eyes might be open to his glory, that we might be enlarged in our capacity to admire him, that our faith might be strengthened, that our love might be deepened. Indeed, as the word says, that those who know the name of the Lord might trust him. So that's my aim. And today we turn to the first name, the most common name of all which is not even translated in our modern versions. The King James translates it maybe a dozen times. Whenever you see the word L-O-R-D in all capital letters, you know that there is a name behind it. Do you notice in your Bible that sometimes L-O-R-D is small letters and sometimes it's all caps? There is a personal name behind the word Lord when it's capital. In the Hebrew, it has four consonants, which would come over into English as Y, H, W, H, and perhaps was translated or pronounced something like Yahweh. That name was revered so highly by the Jews that they would not take it upon their lips, lest they take it in vain, as the Ten Commandments say they shouldn't do. Therefore, every time a Jew came to the word Yahweh, and they came to it 6,828 times in the Old Testament, they said, Adonai, which means my Lord. And our modern English versions have basically followed the same pattern. They use L-O-R-D with capital letters to signify that it's not the word Lord in the generic sense. It is a name like John or Karsten or Benjamin or Abraham or Barnabas. It is God's name and it is rich with meaning. There is a text in the Old Testament that I believe unfolds for us some of the meaning of the name Yahweh. 
And it's Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. God has come to Moses and he says to Moses, bring my people up out of captivity into the wilderness where they can worship me. Moses says to God in verse 13 of Exodus 3, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, probably says the Lord in your version, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, notice. When Moses asked God the question, what shall I tell them your name is? God gives three answers, not one. His first answer is, tell them, I am who I am. That's my name. Second in verse 14, second half, he says, tell them, I am has sent me to you. And then third in verse 15, God says, tell them, Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name. Now, there are two facts here that persuade me that what God is intending to do here at this encounter with Moses is fill up the meaning of this name Yahweh with some of what he intends. The two things that persuade me are, one, something that you can't see unless you read Hebrew, namely, that the term Yahweh and the word I am are built on the same word, Hayah, in Hebrew. The other thing you can see just comes right out of the English text as well as the Hebrew. Namely, that it looks as if he uses the term Yahweh interchangeably with I am. Verse 14, tell them I am, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, tell them Yahweh has sent me to you. And if you could see that paralleling in relationship to the actual vocabulary, it becomes obvious that God's purpose is to tell us something about the meaning of this awesome name, Yahweh, that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce. Here is the key, evidently, to the meaning. I am who I am. That's who God is. That's his name. And I think when you come to places like that in the Scripture, you'll just way slow down. And meditate a long time. Think, ponder, query. What does it mean when you ask your God, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. I would like to spell out for you briefly, and I'm afraid very inadequately to the reality, seven implications of the name, I am who I am. The first is this. God exists. Now, that's, that is obvious, you may say, and it is basic. It doesn't need pointing out. But I think it does need pointing out with its implications because there are a lot of people who say they believe it and then act as though it were not true. 
suppose the president of the united states invited you to come to a reception at the white house and uh, just with a few of your friends and a reporter and uh, he welcomes you into the green room and he's sitting by the fireplace and you walk in right by him and you don't glance at him and you don't say a word to him and throughout the whole evening you don't talk to him you don't look at him you don't thank him you don't regard him you don't inquire why he invited you you totally ignore the president and the import, the reporters come up to you and uh, ask you do you do you believe uh president's here do you believe in the existence of the president oh yes in fact you go so far as to expand your doctrinal commitments and say that you believe this is his house and that all the food we're now eating that's his food and your doctrines are very sound but you ignore him and he has no place in your affections and his gifts and not himself are the center of your attention the vast majority of the people who say they believe in God treat God just like that. They treat him like hydrogen. You were taught, probably, weren't you, in school? I was. I hope it hasn't changed. That the water I drink has hydrogen in it, H2O. And after I learned that fact and believed it with all my heart, never doubted it, it didn't make one snippet of a difference in my life that I can remember not a piece I returned after learning that to other more important things as I saw them put yourself forward a few years maybe very few to the day of judgment when all of humanity is gathered before the judgment bench and we stand before God to give an account of our lives God is going to say to millions of people something like this now, it's my understanding that uh, you expressed belief in me while you were on earth, that you affirmed my existence. Is that correct? And they will say, yes. And then God will say, and, and is it not true that in your life on earth, the more honor and importance and virtue and power and beauty a person had, the more uh, regard and affection uh, and admiration and respect they received. Is, is that not the case? And you will say, yes. And then God is going to say, perhaps even to some of you, I hope not, then why is it that you had such a an insignificant place for me in your life. Why is it that you said you believed me, but then you didn't feel any more admiration for me? You didn't seek my wisdom in your daily affairs. You didn't spend much time in fellowship with me. You didn't strive to know me as though I were very interesting or admirable. What is the world going to answer? That's 95% of the people in this country who answer polls, yes, they believe in God. What are they going to answer? What are thousands of so-called Christians going to answer whose faith in God is virtually the same as their faith in hydrogen?
Oh, how easy it is going to be for God to condemn people. Easy. You can do it. You just did it. Sometimes in our self-asserting pride, we actually feel as though God's going to be hard put to find some evidence to condemn people to hell. It's going to be easy. Easy. The defendants will be utterly speechless because of the manifest inconsistency between their words and their lives. The prosecutor's portfolio will not be opened past page one. And it's thick. Because on page one, it stands written, Defendant affirmed that God exists. Personal life lived as though he made no difference. And the book will be closed. And the case will be closed. And the sentence of condemnation will be easy. Condemned in the name Yahweh is the first and most important truth. God exists. And I hope and I pray that everybody in this room, every individual, will pause long enough in your quest for glory and for pleasure and think about the implications that God exists and that you affirm it. The second implication of the name I am who I am is that God's personality and power are owing solely to himself. God's personality and power are owing solely to himself. Push back with me in another direction. We went forward to the judgment. Let's go backwards this time. Back behind the existence of yourself, behind the world, behind the solar system, behind the galaxies, behind the existence of the universe when there was only God and nothing else. And then try to go behind God and ask him, now what was it back here that made you the way you are? How did you come to have this character? Where did you get your power? Where did you hit upon your mission? If you ask me those questions, where did you come from? How did you get to be the way you are, John Piper? I'd say, well, Bill and Ruth Piper gave me a set of genes, and then they brought me up a certain way. And then I was surrounded by thousands and thousands of environmental influences for the past 38 years. That's how I got to be the way I am. What do, you, what do you do when you try to transmit that over to God? How'd you get to be the way you are? What's God going to say? All he can say is, I am who I am. And it is an amazing statement. In other words, nobody gave me a set of genes. 
Nobody and no power brought me into existence or shaped my personality. I had no beginning. I can remember as a little child lying on the roof of my house. I've told you this before. Looking up into the sky and feeling dread at the beginninglessness of God. He had to get started somehow. Something had to make God. He can't just be the reality with whom we all have to do. Just is. But that's what he says. Utterly self-determined. Having no influence upon himself from without except influences which he himself has created and controls. Behind him there is no reality. So asking the question, why is God the way he is, is like asking me, when are you going to stop beating your wife? Because both of them assume states of affairs that don't exist and are therefore unanswerable. I don't beat my wife, so I can't answer that question. And God has nobody to look to for an explanation for how he is the way he is. And therefore he can't answer your question how he got to be the way he is. All he can say is, I am who I am. I am the reality with which creatures must deal. That's all there is to it. Sometimes we have to simply pause and realize that the end of all our questions terminate in God. And we worship. The third implication of the name I am who I am is that God does not change. In Malachi 3.6, God says, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God has within himself a freedom from all influences without and therefore he is not subject to the change that comes about through those influences on us. The reason we change our minds is because unforeseen circumstances arise or because we are weak in our resolution. God is not weak and there are no unforeseen circumstances to God. He is who he is without weakness, without fault, and without influence upon him from without that he does not himself govern. Therefore, he does not change. And his changelessness is the granite foundation of our confidence in his faithfulness. The fourth implication of the name, I am who I am, is that God is an inexhaustible source of energy. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. God can't get tired because he is energy. Have you ever thought, I'm sure many of you scientists have, where does motion, combustion, fusion, and fission. Get its start. Every time you see something over at the Omni Theater or read something about how the universe gets started, they always start with something. Where did it come from? Where did energy get its start in God who is energy? 
flowing out from him, a never-ending, inexhaustible stream of power and energy that will last from all eternity without any of the laws of thermodynamics causing him to wind down. Praise the Lord, because every morning I need that energy. If God got tired, where would I turn? The fifth implication of the name I am who I am is a little bit heady. I'll try it on you anyway. I saw people cock their heads and pose their question marks in the first hour, but we'll give it a go. Objectivity is crucial. The opposite of objectivity is subjectivity. Subjectivity is when you think that reality is what you like it to be. And that's not hard to understand. Objectivity is when you believe there is reality outside yourself which doesn't change no matter what you think about it or feel about it. And there are many people who have so overemphasized the cultural, sociological, anthropological dimension of religious formation that they've lost all confidence that there is objectivity in the divine to which we must conform. Instead, we think, well, if you think he's this way, then he must be that way for you. And if you think he's this way, he must be that way for you. But when God says, I am who I am, he teaches us to embrace a humble objectivity that says, God, you are outside me, independent of me. You will be yourself no matter what I feel or think about you. Help me to know you and to be conformed to your reality. Not try to get you to conform to mine. And that's the sixth implication. I've already flowed over into it. The sixth implication of I am who I am is that we must conform to God, not God to us. If children should conform their manners to their parents rather than parents to their children, if players should learn their moves from the coach rather than the coach learn them from the players, if soldiers should learn their strategies from the general and not the general from the soldiers, then surely it is easy to see that creatures should learn their moves, their strategies, their manners from their maker. And the world goes on saying, I believe in God and doesn't conform its life at all to God. And it just blows you away to think of what they're going to experience on the judgment day. I urge you to think about the implications of confessing God to be your God when you're not devoting your days to conforming your life to his will and character. One final implication and we're done. And it's the greatest, perhaps. At least it's the one that causes all the others to hit home. This infinite, absolute, self-determining God has drawn near in Jesus Christ. Now that's implied in the name because of the use Jesus makes of it. Listen to this. Jesus is answering the questions of the Jewish leaders in John 8:56, and he says... Your father rejoiced that he was to see my day. And he was glad and saw it 
And the Jews said to him, You're not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This make chills run up and down my back. That Jesus Christ took that name from Exodus chapter 3, so filled with immense deity and sovereignty. And he said, before Abraham was, I am Yahweh. He took that name with all of its magnificence, truth about God, and he wrapped it in the humility of servanthood. And then he went straight to the cross and laid himself down as an atonement for our rebellion against that name. And he rose and he opened a way for us to look at that name as sinners through faith in himself and delight in the majesty of God without dread. In Jesus Christ, you who are born of God have the unspeakable privilege of knowing Yahweh as your Savior and your Father. Rejoice. For He is a God who says, I am who I am. The God who exists. The God whose personality and power is owing solely to Himself and no one else. The God who never changes and therefore can be counted on. The God from whom flows all power and energy in the universe. The God to whom all creation must conform or perish. This is the name of God. I am who I am. And may all those who know the name of God put their trust in him. And now unto God who calls himself, I am who I am. Be glory and majesty and dominion before all time now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen.